Hi, and this is the Physics High Podcast. A quick quiz. Do you, A, want to be inspired by science communicators? B, want to learn all about science education? C, want guidance on your scientific journey? Well, how about D, all of the above? Today's podcast is a little different. Today, I'm going to be interviewing an economist rather than a science communicator or a scientist. But you will see my guest today has a very strong link to science. I have the privilege of introducing you to Dr. Frank Schotzo. Now, Frank is the Professor of Environmental Economics and Climate Change Economics at the Australian National University Crawford School of Public Policy, where he also directs the Centre of Climate and Energy Policy. Now, he's been recognised as one of the 50 global influencers on renewable energy. He was also the lead author on both the fifth and sixth Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change Report. And of course, he's an expert on developing economic policies to address climate change, not only at the state and national level, but also advising international bodies as well. Welcome, Frank. Hello, Paul. Now, let's say you walk into a room and someone comes up to you and says, so, uh, Frank, uh, what do you do? How do you answer that? (laughs) Well, I'm an economist uh, who specializes in policy applications around energy and climate change. And uh, so whether that then really answers people's question uh, is another matter, but that's an accurate description um, of what I do. An economic lens and a uh, research-based perspective on the very big problems uh, around how we deal with climate change and in particular, how we take the emissions out of our economy. That's, that's what I do. I do it at a university, but I deal a lot with uh, business, with NGOs and uh, uh, by necessity with governments as well. And then this person seems to ask you, well, what's an economist? What do they do? Yeah, so what's economics? Uh, economics is the science of trade-offs, okay? So that's it at the, at the very heart. Uh, in economics, we ask the question, we only have, um, you know, this much uh, of a resource. How do we best allocate it? And the, of course, the, the most fundamental resource that we all have as societies and as individuals is what? It's time, right? So what do we do with the uh, the the time in our lives that's that's given to us, right? Uh, and we you know we make decisions about that all the time, right? Who do we spend our time with? Uh, how much of our time do we spend working, um, earning money? How much of our time do we spend playing sports or just relaxing, right? Um, and economics is that uh, in a very systematic fashion and asking that question about trade-offs and the optimal use of resources. Um, right across uh, human society, right? Um, And so, yeah. Uh, And obviously that kind of broad frame of thinking about things can be applied to all sorts of things, right? Can be applied to production economics of something, can be applied to the labor market, to, to the health system, very important applications there, and obviously also to the environment. Uh, and that's my field. So turning to climate change, which is actually your expertise in terms of the economics involved with that, just in case we have a listener who's been living under a rock, can you tell us a little bit about what climate change is? Yeah, so um, climate change is the effect that we see from the uh, 
uh, from the emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So the most fundamental greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide. Um, how do hum humans produce carbon dioxide? Well, principally by digging coal uh, out of the ground or extracting oil and gas and burning it. Um, and of course, the, the waste product from the release of energy. Um, we want the energy and we've got the waste product. The waste product is carbon dioxide, um, which by and large goes up into the atmosphere, um, mixes very well in the atmosphere. Some of it is taken up again by the ocean uh, or the land, um, but about a half or so of the carbon dioxide that we emit uh, stays relatively long term in the atmosphere um, and acts there as a heat trapping gas. Okay, so um, the, the molecules in the atmosphere simply don't let out quite as much of the, uh, the heat energy that hits uh, the uh, surface of the earth, gets radiated back into space. Some of that um, gets caught in the atmosphere and gets radiated back down. Um, and so this is, this is what we've been doing since, um, uh, since the Industrial Revolution, really, at a very large scale and at a scale large enough to, um, to quite significantly affect the climate uh, on the planet. And so the uh, atmospheric concentration of uh, carbon dioxide uh, used to be around 280 parts per million. That's the measurement we use for that. And is now well over 400 parts per million um, as a result uh, of, uh, of emissions that come uh, from our civilization by and large. Most of that, by the way, um, introduced into the atmosphere over the last 40 or 50 years. And that's what's causing climate change. Um, and in fact, you know, that is an in and an, an, uh, uh, a, uh, a messing with the Earth system at a uh, on a scale that that we we really don't do with anything else hardly. Um, uh, and to give you a sense of that, you know that over four hundred parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is very far outside of the entire historical variability in the atmosphere that we can reconstruct over the last 800,000 years. And, uh, and that change has also occurred far, far more rapidly than any of the historic variability in carbon dioxide levels. And that's what's driving things. And that's, of course, also the challenge then uh, that we're needing to come to grips with, and that is to stop stop the uh, the addition of greenhouse gases uh, to to the atmosphere that's what we need uh, that's what we mean by net zero emissions that's a term that everyone's talking about now and that's the challenge uh, over over just a few decades actually uh, that we need to achieve that if we take pay close attention particularly to the media the probably the the big ticket item, so to speak, of the um, effects of climate change are rising sea levels, uh, extreme weather events, of course, average temperatures increase. But I'd imagine there are a number of other lesser known ramifications of climate change, particularly in your expertise. Can you share some of the things that, in particularly in your area, that you see has an impact on our society due to climate change? Yeah, so climate change impacts will manifest themselves in very different forms in different parts of the world. Um, and among that whole basket of changes that will occur, um, different ones will be important for, uh, for different groups and, and different uh, industries and different regions. 
Now, uh, first of all, the question, right, is a changed climate a worse climate? Um, well, you know, not a priori, because, you know, it's just going to be warmer and different. What's bad about that? Well, what's bad about that is that the entirety of our infrastructure and our human systems, including, for example, agriculture and food production systems, and including where we have built our cities, um, is then no longer fit for purpose under a changed climate, right? Um, that's, that's the fundamental problem. Um, one very large change, perhaps the single biggest change uh, from climate change, um, is a change in the hydrological system, right? And so um, we will see different rainfall patterns. We will see more rainfall uh, in some parts of the world, less rainfall in other parts of the world, um, on average, greater intensity of rainfall. And that has very major implications, not just for flooding, um, but also for water availability for agriculture, and in some uh, instances, uh, for human use, uh, in, in, in terms of just, you know, water supply uh, for cities and so forth. And so that's, of course, a very big topic uh, for the southeastern part of Australia, uh, where we both are. And, you know, under some scenarios of future climate change, there could be a very significant average drying effect with much less rainfall, um, you know, which poses questions for the water availability for, uh, you know, uh, the, the many millions of people who live here. Um, but, you know, perhaps, you know, less tractably um, uh, water availability for agriculture. And, uh, you know, I mean, impacts of climate change on global food production systems are really, really very large uh, ticket item in the equation. I saw an interview uh, that you did seven years ago, in fact, you talked about that climate change policy is risk mitigation policy. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so we don't know just exactly how uh, climate change will turn out. We know we know the broad lines of what may happen. Um, and, and we don't know how severe it will get in particular parts of the world. And so, um, you know, so what you're talking about, you know, in scientific terms is, is a probability distribution of outcomes, right? And so uh, I should be able to draw something, but you, you know what I mean, right? So um, uh, imagine, a, you know, a normal distribution of, uh, of, of climatic impacts, right? From, from good on the left-hand side to bad on the right-hand side, right? And somewhere in the middle there, you have a clumping of outcomes. Um, and that clumping is very clearly on the bad side. Right, so it's not a symmetrical distribution around the neutral point. Right, the neutral point uh, is 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 all the way shifted to the left. Right, so there's almost no no part of the probability distribution that describes a a good outcome as a result of climate change. Right, and so the bulk of the outcomes are in the bad space, maybe in the moderately bad to pretty bad space. But then, as you go down the right hand side of the probability distribution, right that right-hand side of the Gauss curve, right? Um, you're getting to areas where there's really very, very bad outcomes. So for example, a cascading effect of climatic impacts in one part of the world, you know, the Indian monsoon stops, uh, the El, El Nino system locks into a system that leaves Australia permanently dry. Um, various other effects that then may lead to economic uh, and social uh, instability, 
large-scale population movements by people who no longer have a livelihood where they live, um, which then usually causes, uh, you know, uh, with the polite term is security pressures, the real term for it is war or civil war, right? And, and, and you have cascading effects from there. That would be a very bad outcome. And the, the principal objective of climate change policy is is to preclude or at least reduce the risk of very bad outcomes, right? And that's what I mean by climate change policy as risk management policy. We don't know where we will land this thing, right? We want, but we want to land it as far away as possible from uh, from the abyss, right? That's that's basically it. In order to to minimize um, the the remaining risk of of really bad outcomes. And that's a really difficult economic question, right? Because if you wanted to optimize this in a in a perfect trade-off between you know minimizing the amount of resources that we spend now to address the problem, while also also maximizing the chance of avoiding bad outcomes in the future, right? Where exactly do, do we draw the line, right? It's decision making under uncertainty, and there's no there's no hard and fast rules about that. Define that um, is actually a little bit of a double-edged sword. People like certainty. People like to make a decision that clearly is going one way to the other. But the fact that, that it is such a gray area and the difficulty makes those who are wary of major changes to accept those changes. It's, Paul, it's been traditionally difficult on that, on that side of things because those, um, you know, including the political system, who are who are skeptical of the proposition of spending major amounts of money uh, and and resources more generally on addressing climate change, one of the questions they ask is so, okay, how can you be sure we're not wasting this money, right? How can you be sure we're not we're not doing too much on this, right? Um, and and the answer is of course, well, we're not sure that we're overshooting the target here in terms of action right um but we're equally quite sure that if we do nothing we will be very far on the on the bad end of the equation and we need to avoid that just how far we optimally go is is very hard to define but you know there is a very um very powerful principle and that's the principle of precaution Right. So when you have very bad potential outcomes, then you want to take an element of precaution against it. That is why, you know, those of us who own a house, right, will by default take out insurance against the house burning down. Right. And that insurance costs quite a bit of money. Right. And the probability of the house burning down is really very small. Mm-hmm. But you want to rule out the possibility of your house burning down uh, and you're not getting any compensation money afterwards, right? Um, A a big picture example uh, might be, um, let's take that example, preparedness for a pandemic, for example, right? Um, And so we would probably, uh, we will think back to COVID, right? Um, And be uh, very, very thankful for the fact that we have had a standing capability um, among some of the leading medical research companies to quickly develop vaccines, right? And you could have, in advance, you could have asked, well, that's a bit of a waste of money, right? Um, to be able to develop new vaccines so quickly, that's, that's expensive to have all of these scientists 
kind of sitting there ready to do this, right? But of course, looking back, that was precisely what was needed. Another example, right? Um, there's a uh, there's a fairly firm plan to buy a number of nuclear powered attack submarines for Australia, right? Why are we doing that? Well, because we want to guard against some risk in the future um, of, of some major war breaking out in our region. We want to be well prepared for that. It's, it's a similar, and you know, the climate change issue is, is larger than, than either, either of those two examples, but similar principles are in play. Talking about uh, what you would advise, I guess, larger bodies so at governmental level at this stage. And I know that there would be like, there's a reason why you are an expert in this and there are many aspects to this. But what would you say are the main things that you think the government should do on a practical basis to to limit? Now, when we talk about, you know, uh, net zero emissions by 2050, but, you know, governments are saying, well, what does that mean? What do I need to do to do that? Yeah, and look, um, we will, uh, in the public sphere, we will learn a lot about that um, over coming months and, and, and years. In, in the research sphere, um, this is already uh, pretty much crystal clear, okay, bar a few uncertainties of an economic and, and technological kind. Um, this is actually a very typical situation where uh, where research, in particular university research, um, is between, say, five to 15 years ahead of where kind of the general understanding um, uh, of things are. And so, um, you know, an, an easy way of explaining this is um, think of a few key pillars, pillars of decarbonization, we, we call it. So the objective here is to take most of the greenhouse gas emissions out of the economy, right? How are we going about it, go about it? The first and fundamental pillar, right? The one in the middle really is electricity. Um, we currently have electricity systems in Australia and many other countries that are heavily built around the combustion of coal and also the combustion of gas, okay? A little bit of oil in the, in the mix as well. Um, Historically, that's been the most convenient and cheapest way of producing electricity, but produces an enormous amount of greenhouse gases. And the very, very positive news is that it is, it is easily possible to replace coal and gas in electricity generation with renewable energy. Okay, this is, this is technically relatively straightforward. Okay, wind turbines, solar panels, and energy storage for those periods when, you know, uh, as the, uh, the political saying goes, you know, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, right? Um, and we know how to do that. And it's been done for many, many years. And the, the crucial element that this is now cheap to do as well. And in many places in the world, including Australia, building any kind of new capacity for electricity generation, wind and solar plus storage are now cheaper than building a new fossil fuel plant, right? And in that sense, we're home and hosed, right? The problem is just that we have all of these old plants that are sitting there running, okay? And they're very cheap, right? Um, and once you, you turn those plants off, you know, they have no value whatsoever at all, right? And so the temptation is, of course, to keep them running for as long as you possibly can before you turn them off and replace them with wind and solar. Anyway, this is happening. It will happen, right? The only question is how quickly... Uh, it will happen. Uh, and all indications are that that transition from coal to renewables in Australia will happen 
far faster than we thought it would be. This is tremendously good news. So then we will have a carbon-free electricity supply sector. We can grow that. We can make it twice as big as it is today. There's no practical limits for this, right? It's just investment, right? Then we will use all of that electricity that we now have without emissions, right? And use it to power our industries, our houses, and our cars, and our trucks, and our trains, right? Um, and that is the fundamental story of decarbonization. Zero carbon electricity supply, and then electrification of everything. And electrification of everything in some instances will happen all by itself, right? Electric cars are rapidly getting cheaper and, uh, you know, the, you know, it's a fair bet the, the car that you might buy, Paul, or that I might buy in five years' time, we might buy an electric car just simply because it's more attractive at the same price, right? Um, but then there's other areas in particular in industry um, where it needs a prod, right, and a shift because burning coal or gas will remain the cheaper option. And there we need to we need to push, right? And we need to put penalties on emissions. We need to put incentive payments uh, and all the rest of it. And then there's industrial processes, cement, for example, right? So uh, if you're doing chemistry, you know, there's a chemical process involved there that by its nature releases carbon dioxide when we're making cement. What are we gonna do about that? Well, we can use less cement uh, it's in a clinker production as a as a precursor to cement. We can use less or less concrete. Um, we could maybe be able to capture some of the carbon dioxide at the plant level and pump it underground. Kind of expensive and uh, depends on local opportunities to actually put the CO two somewhere safely, right? Um, maybe there's alternative products in the future, and that's where the research sector really needs to make further contributions. And then there's agriculture. And in agriculture, Australia is very large greenhouse gas emitter for, from agriculture. And you know, the main sources are ruminant animals, right? Cattle and sheep. Yeah. And it's it's not the farting, it's the burping in that case, right? And there's there's some technological solutions for that that get us part of the way a bit there. But you know, to go all of the way uh, requires uh, replacing uh, ruminant animals uh, with with other types of protein in our diet, okay? And whether that's kangaroo or whether that's um, uh, chicken meat or whether that's a vegetarian diet, um, all of those are options. Which are very, very big asks for a population to change. And yet, I think, as you said before, the, the fact of the uncertainty of the risks and so forth makes people hesitant to make those changes. But yes, we have to make those changes. And they're changes that happen over very long time frames, yeah. right? It's, you know, in the public debate, many of these changes sound very, very scary because people imagine them to happen like overnight, right? But we're talking net zero by 2050, right? Um, and so that, you know, it's 30 years away. That's, that's as far away as 1991 was from today. Um, and 1991 was, you know, well before uh, the first email was sent, if I'm not getting this wrong, right? Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of water that'll go under the bridge before then. Just talking about uh, 2050, uh, and obviously with the Glasgow Conference coming up, is that a good figure in terms of, um, I'm not talking, obviously, it is a good thing to for an agreement for 2050. But I guess the question is, is that is that too late in terms of the process? There's a lot of discussion about we need to have action faster. What's your views? 
Yeah, this is this is a very good point, Paul. And so the the net zero by 2050 or by 2060 for China and probably many other developing countries are going to take something like that on. Um, that is, of course, um, you know, uh, far in the future, and it is it is a signpost, a, a sort of a guiding light of where we need to head, basically, right? Um, and the action is really all in in the intervening period, right? So if we if we just kept going as we are, do nothing, just keep all of the systems as sort of a 20th century type high carbon system, and keep going through the 2020s and through the 2030s, and then hit the brakes in the 2040s, it'll well and truly be too late, right? Because um, what the what the atmosphere sees is, of course, not you know the emissions globally at a point in time in 2050, but the accumulated emissions over time, and we call that the carbon budget. Right, our carbon budget in total is constrained. Right, and so when uh, you know when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change produces um, the the estimates as to what sort of emissions trajectory we need to be on in order to still have a chance at two degrees or 1.5 degrees warming right um then there are always assumptions about the shape of that trajectory right and so um you know uh, at the Glasgow climate conference here in australia if you listen to the public debate you might think it's all about net zero really it'll be very largely about 2030 and 2030 emissions targets and doing more doing better um over the next 10 years um to really make a difference bending down the curve and to set it up for a rapid transition down to net zero 2050 that's what it's all about and you know i mean the australian political process has lagged behind the international discussion in in very regrettable ways i think we can say I mean, you obviously were lead author on a number of the intergovernmental reports. I'd, I'd had a look at the summary of the latest one that was released uh, only a couple of months ago. And uh, I, I remember a reading about uh, the possibility of an ice-free summer in Arctic. And I did a video on that uh, a couple of years ago, actually, uh, the Blue Ocean event. And it, it predicted at least one, uh, if not more, by 2050. As we mentioned, there are those things that have cascading events. Um, so, you know, if nothing is done leading up to 2050, we could actually, as you said, could go past the point of no return. Ne my next question is, um, you have lots of people, particularly, I guess, in the Australian uh, public, is to say, Australia is such a small country, um, and yet countries such as Russia, uh, uh, China, are putting out far more fossil fuel or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Why should we have such an urgency? How would you respond to that? Yeah, and Paul, if I can briefly just on that on that scenario of, of cascading runaway climate change impacts and all of that. You know, in, in all of this and in, in our discussion thus far as well, one thing we, we really need to um, uh, to remember is that now we are actually in a in a better position right um in terms of the opportunity to limit climate change than five or ten years ago we thought we would be in okay um and so you know for example when uh 2006 when the first big uh, economic report on climate change was produced by lord nicholas stern in the uk um, that only looked at two scenarios namely a two degree scenario and a three degree scenario right um, and a five degree scenario as a bad outcome right um, 
and, and Nick Stern at the time actually dismissed the two degree scenario as impossible to achieve. Right. And so he focused back then and on how the world could limit climate change to, well, global warming to three degrees as opposed to five degrees. Um, a five degree world now is seen as a relatively remote risk. Right. A two degree outcome seems eminently achievable. Right. And a difference is technology. So, you know, the technologies that used to be almost prohibitively expensive just 10 years ago are now affordable. Right. And that's the key. And so, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about this, there's, there is now less reason for pessimism than there was five or 10 years ago. Absolutely. Okay. Now, why should we do something when we're such a small country? Okay. Yes. It's a, a frequently encountered argument and a very infuriating one, right? Um, because let's make the, uh, the comparison with China or the United States. Now, if Australia were one province of China, right then australia then the, the province of australia would be one of the larger provinces in china okay so now out of that do you derive an argument that china shouldn't do anything because it consists of 20 odd provinces each of which is relatively small right no of course you don't right um and so you know uh the right frame of reference is a per capita one right? It's how many people live in a country, right? And as a result, how much should they contribute to the global effort, right? That's the right um, lens to take to that. And once we take the per capita approach, right, then the logical conclusion is that Australia should actually be doing far more per capita than the global average. And the reason is that our greenhouse gas emissions per capita are far higher than the global average, more than three times higher than the global average. Okay, that's because we're a very rich society and one heavily built on fossil fuels. Okay, so oftentimes that is cited as a reason why this is hard for us. No, that's the reason why this is easy for us because it's easy for us to get rid of. Okay, and secondly, it's because we're a very rich country, right? So among the largest, the not small countries in the world, we're at the very top the income scale right and so you know um when you uh, uh, this is something that comes up in climate change negotiations all the time right um when when australia says that developing countries should really pull their weight right you can imagine just how lead balloonish that goes down um with countries where the average per capita income is 10 times lower uh, than than in australia right it should be australia that goes first and that pays for the heavy lifting and, and and the US and most European countries and Canada and a few others as well right so yeah that's it's a very convenient excuse if you want don't want to do anything is is to point to someone else um and and say they should they should go first otherwise I won't do anything I'm reminded when you mentioned that uh, the billboard uh, was in Times Square with Scott Morrison um for 10 minutes or so what can Australia do better on at least on a, on a national level? Oh, look, um, first of all, uh, we need to well and truly understand that properly engaging with decarbonisation and reducing Australia's emissions will actually be the right thing also economically, right? Um, not, not just because of the contribution to the global effort to limit global warming, right? 
we are very exposed to this in Australia and we have a genuine interest for the world to act strongly, right? But also because the economy, the world economy of the future will be a low carbon one. Um, and, you know, if we were to become a sort of a dinosaur economy that still tries to run an economic model of the 1990s, that is not a recipe for long-term economic success, right? Um, and so, you know, we, we need to work out where are the economic opportunities for this country over the next 50 years, and they're different economic opportunities from the last 50 years. It's as simple as that. And how do we get there? Well, um, the politics of this have stood massively in the way of progress in Australia uh, since about November 2009. We can pinpoint uh, that really quite quite exactly. That's the time when the uh, the negotiations between then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and then opposition leader Malcolm Turnbull broke down, um, and uh, and the then future Prime Minister Tony Abbott took over the uh, the Liberal Party, and since then climate change has been used and abused as a as a political football in Australia, and we need to get past that. And once once we're past that, and there's a decent chance right now for getting past this, then it'll it'll be possible to make some proper progress on this, and have a have a a real national conversation about how we're going to go about this problem. What I find fascinating is an article you recently wrote, which said it actually it's economic sense to uh, to actually address climate change. Yeah. So you know. Um, so first of all, of course, reducing uh, reducing climate change. It's a, it's a massive no brainer to invest for that. Um, if you were a world government, right? But of course, in the atomistic world of, of us being only one and a half percent of the world economy, right? There's this incentive to free ride. But if you know, uh, with with a substantial shift towards low emission systems, right? The economic advantage will be with those countries that actually um, uh, have something to contribute in a, in a zero carbon uh, world economy. And for Australia, that could be uh, renewable energy based uh, products and energy, right? So sending electricity via cable to Singapore, that's a real plan, right? Producing hydrogen and ammonia at very large scale to export to population rich countries in the very northern latitudes, Japan, Germany in particular, um, where there will be a dearth of renewable energy opportunities in the middle of winter, right? Producing steel, not on the basis of iron ore and coking coal, but on the basis of iron ore, hydrogen and renewable energy could be perfectly done in Australia in the Pilbara, right? Positioning for that uh, is, is the opportunity. And ultimately, you know, when you think over the horizon, even more than this, um, there's a reason we're talking about net zero emissions, not zero emissions. And that's because, you know, the science tells us that there will always be some elements of our economies where we will still produce greenhouse gas emissions, right? Some things will be useful to do um, uh, where it just won't pay to, to go to some sort of zero emissions options. And what are we going to do? Well, we're going to take out some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to compensate for that, right? How are we going to do that? Well, plant trees, you know, different agricultural systems to have more soil on a permanent basis in the ground, right? But also technological options, right? We take carbon dioxide um, out of the atmosphere already. What for? Well, for some industrial purposes where we need CO2, 
and also for the fizzy drinks. That's not a joke. That's actually true. And it's a very simple chemical process again, right? Um, one that requires a setup and quite a lot of energy, right? And of course, we can do that at infinitely large scale in the future, using once again renewable energy. And where in the world would you do it? Well, in a few places. Um, and Australia could be one could be one of those places where we have a, a very large scale carbon dioxide removal industry. Uh, so that's that's one of those visions how we can have a um, a large and profitable resource based energy based industry. Uh, and and profit for from it in a zero carbon or net zero world. Let's turn tack. I think we could spend a long time talking about carbon and obviously climate change and policy and so forth. But I want to turn our attention back to you. You are an economist. So I guess the question I want to ask you is, is um, what made you decide to go into economics and particularly into environmental and climate change economics? What was that something that you came to later or was that something when you were at, at school and then going into university, something that you were always fascinated in? What led you to that climate change aspect? Oh, Paul, look, this is not secret. You can pull up my CV. Um, I took a little bit of time out after school, actually, and did a few other things. And when I then went to university, not too much time, but a few years. And when I went to university, I was fairly clear about what I wanted to do in life, right? And that was um, to, to have some measure of influence, if possible, on, on how we arrange our affairs in society. Um, and, uh, and, you know, on the basis of, of solid, um, solid foundations of, of research and, and insight, uh, rather than in politics, right? And when you look around, you notice that there's a few uh, professions one, one can, or a few things that one could study that will tend to take you in that direction more than others, right? Uh, and that economics is one of them, uh, by far not the only one, you know, I mean, sciences are very, very strong potential in, in, in that regard as well, obviously, uh, as is engineering. Uh, but yeah, that was my decision. And um, during, you know, I did an economics degree. And then um, uh, in my master's degree as postgraduate uh, study, I focused um, on, uh, on development economics at the time, actually. Uh, that was my particular interest. Um, and uh, around about that time, the, uh, the UN Kyoto Protocol was negotiated. This is 1997. And it was the first sort of uh, landmark applied international climate treaty. Um, endlessly fascinating thing for an economist, right? Uh, the first um, uh, applied large-scale effort for the world to come together and negotiate a binding agreement to deal with the climate change challenge, right? With economic instruments woven through it and all of that. And at that point, I, I decided to, to get into environmental economics and uh, that's, uh, that's what I did. And how did you get yourself into, obviously, your role of advising for Roscano? Uh, and then also on the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. Look, um, involvement in all of these things is a, is a combination, I guess, of um, uh, maybe 80% tenacity and 20% luck or something like that, right? Um, the 80-20 rule is often applicable in these circumstances, right? Um, you know, uh, you want to be there, you want to be doing the work. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, the, these kinds of jobs are, 
are not done kind of like um, on on the side with a little uh, with limited effort. You know, you give it your everything, um, and if you give it your everything, then um, and you do that for a while, right? Then you will naturally acquire a bit of standing as as an expert in your field of expertise, whatever that expertise may be, right? Um, and then you know comes in the twenty percent of of luck or happenstance where. You know, uh, you may or not may not be the person who is called on for for a particular task, right? Um, and so, that uh, that probably describes my my initial involvement with the with the Garno review. You know, Professor Garno at the time was uh, one of the senior professors in the university department that I was just hired into. Okay. Um, and you know the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Process, is one by government nomination and then uh, international panel selection. And so, who knows how these things work um, behind the scenes? But look, I mean, uh, if we look at the question as one of of giving advice, right? Then it's really simple. It's like with everything else, right? You choose what you're passionate uh, about, and then you give it a red hot go consistently uh, that's that's really the story isn't it i i see you a bit of a science communicator as well as an economist clearly you're called on as you've mentioned uh, i mean privately you know uh, with many journalists and obviously uh, other members of the government and public and so forth to express your opinions and the importance of action in terms of climate change why is this communication important well from one science communicator to another right um I think we're in this because we know how important it is, right? So um, one tool in economics, right, is to is to take things to an absurd extreme, right? And, and that often provides clarity. Imagine a scientific system with no external communication at all, right? Um, it would almost by definition become irrelevant, right? Because it would just sit in itself um, and would have no way of interacting with the world, right? Um, and, and so obviously there's going to be some sort of interface between science and, and, and the rest of the world and, uh, and in particular decision-making processes. Now, um, the, the more a problem is new and the more it is difficult to deal with politically and for societies, the more important it is to have good science communication about it, I would say, right? So when things aren't, in, when things are immediately obvious as to why you would do things, right? Um, then the need for science communication around them is not so strong. But for something like climate change, that's, you know, really quite complex in all of the different interactions, right? And that is a topic that has such a strong political dimension to it. And I don't necessarily mean the party politics. I mean, politics as a society-wide decision-making process, right? There's some really big questions that we collectively need to grasp with, right? And in order to make good decisions, right, societies need good information, right? And, and that applies both um, in the public sphere, right? People, right? Who influence other people and people who go to the ballot box when it's election time, right? Um, and it is the actual decision-making apparatus. And the decision-making apparatus consists of parliamentarians and, you know, elected governments, but also the business community. And so 
you know, I've always thought it's it's uh, it's really quite important to um, uh, to to help with that process. What would you say to the person that says, "Why would I need to do science at high school? I'm not planning to be a scientist. Why should I be studying science?" Ah, well, look. Um, let's extrapolate to university. The, the large majority of people who study science at university will not be scientists, right? But they will be working in tremendously interesting and important jobs where they can apply scientific thinking, right? So half that, I mean, I don't know, I, I would guess, you know, the overwhelming majority of what you are providing high school students with um, is the ability to think in a scientifically rigorous way, right? And that is something that you will be apply, that you'll be able to apply to everything in life, actually, right? Um, and it's not so much about, you know, the specifics of the equations that you're using in a physics course, right? Uh, or about, you know, the finer points of uh, anorganic chemistry or something like that, right? These things are essentially stepping stones to a goal, and that is to be, um, you know, a, a well-rounded thinker with a crystal clear analytic ability, right? And that's that's what you learn doing science, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, people who who do who do science in high school and also who do science or engineering or you know related disciplines at university and who do it with a bit of passion and a bit of success are highly sought after in many 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 professions actually right um and so yeah i, I personally i think it, it it also um gives you something at a, at a, at a personal level right uh, to be able to to deeply see through problems and and to be able to to think analytically uh, and, uh, and and come to a considered view about things your own considered view that doesn't have to uh, just be owning someone else's opinion on it coming to our final question Frank what uh, tell us something a little bit Clearly, you're reading lots of economics, lots of stuff on climate change, but sometimes you need a break. Um, what's, what's your go-to to, to, uh, to relax? Maybe something that you do that um, is not economic or science-based. Oh, I love hanging out with our kids. Uh, and I love building things, actually, right? I, I like making things from wood. I like uh, light, light construction work that doesn't serve a particular purpose. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the backyard or occasionally small, small projects on a block of land uh, keep, me, keep me happy and occasionally distracted from the job. So what are you building at the moment? I'm currently building some, some path, paths in the backyard. Uh, which is which has been the perfect project during lockdown, actually, right? Because it means, you know, uh, you you don't need to to leave to leave your own backyard in order to have fun with that. Well, Frank, it's been a wonderful uh, discussion with you, and I certainly um, hope uh, continued success. Yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you, Paul. It was most enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to get notifications of upcoming interviews. And you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Physics High. My name is Paul from Physics High. Till next time.